My friend Dave Bast with his wife Diana uh, became part of the Pillar community about four years ago, just a few months after he was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. Uh, They became a part of our community looking for a people to walk from diagnosis to whatever would come through however long it would take. If you ask Dave, he was really looking for a people for his wife, Diana. I think he's maybe 54, 55 years old, incredibly smart guy, straight shooter, a sort of realist who brings down my naive optimism to acceptable levels, especially as it relates to college football. Uh, we, would, uh, we would walk every Monday at four over the last several years. At least we tried every Monday. Uh, we, I call it the fall tour. We go west on 8th Street through the snow-melted sidewalks, then south on Pine, back east on 9th Street through Centennial Park, then up through the college's Pine Grove, back around to Pillar, and if he was feeling good, we'd do it twice. So you can imagine over the last several years, we've had lots of conversation, fun conversations about family and football, harder conversations about death and dying and cancer and chemo and immunotherapies, tense conversations around politics and pandemics. I knew the day would come when we would no longer walk together. I just didn't want it to come. Uh, It came four or five weeks ago. The tumors were growing, multiplying, compression fracture in his spine. The pain became too much. After a couple of doctor visits, they moved from treatment to comfort. Uh, Hospice, that amazing organization, met with Dave and Diana. They came up with a comfort plan. On Monday this past week at 11, I swung over to their place for another conversation. A conversation I want to tell you a little bit about, but first I want you to listen with me to a letter. Dictated by Jesus Christ himself. written by St. John, recorded in the book of Revelation, and then sent to a church in a town called Philadelphia, not the one on our east coast, but the one in Asia Minor. Uh, Sent to them then, here's a picture of Philadelphia just to give you a sense of the geography, sent to them then meant for you now. Listen to the letter. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Look, I have set before you a door standing open that no one will be able to shut. I know you have but little power, yet you've held fast to my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews but are not and are liars, I will make them come and bow before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. If you keep my word of patient endurance, I will keep you 
at the time of trial coming on the whole world and all the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one seizes your crown of life. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God and you will never go out of it. I will write the name of my God on you and the name of the city of my God, the the new Jerusalem coming down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, if you want to find it in a Bible near you or the smartphone on you. But be sure to come back. There's a couple things I want to show you. You probably noticed the door, the open door. And I want you to hear again the claim, the stunning claim. There are, the letter to the church in Philadelphia is one of seven letters contained in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Each of the seven letters follow a predictable pattern. First, there's a description of Jesus. Uh, These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And each of the letters begins with a description of Jesus. And just as an aside, wouldn't it be amazing if and when anyone talks about Pillar, the first thing they say is something about Jesus. Hey, have you heard about Pillar? Pillar, Jesus is so generous. Jesus is so gracious. Jesus is the animating reality of the whole world. Jesus has the keys to reconciliation. Wouldn't that be awesome? And then from the description of Jesus, it moves to a commendation, a sort of pat on the back, a way to go team. I wonder how Jesus would commend us. I know your works. You hold space for people at varying places on the journey. I know your works. You're pursuing my heart in the world. I know your works. You're for the city. I wonder wonder what... Jesus, so from description of Jesus to commendation of the church and then to rebuke or challenge or call and I'm too conflict avoidant to process how Jesus might rebuke us out loud and then to promise. The, the pattern is broken twice. First to the church in Sardis who gets no commendation, at least not overtly. And then this letter, the letter to the church in Philadelphia which gets no rebuke. Jesus thinks highly of the church in Philadelphia. There's a door that stands open. I want you to notice with me. It's Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. Look, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Look, he says. Look, he pleads. An open door. The Bible uses door language all the time. Jesus says, I am the door. And he says, enter through the narrow door. And the apostle Paul talks about the open or shut doors of mission work. And we still talk about doors. Well, the Lord closed that door. I wonder what door Jesus has in mind. If I'm reading the letter to Philadelphia carefully, I think it's a doorway into an alternative reality, to what's really real, what's really true, what's actually going on, a truer true, a more beautiful beauty, a better way, like Lucy's door into the wardrobe, into Narnia, into a life where the trees walk and the animals talk and the air is crisp with grace and the waters run full of life, an alternative reality. 
It's a double hinged door. On one, on one side, the door swings open to this alternative reality. On the other side, it swings into an alternative reality full of life, wholeness, and goodness for the world. Uh, the Philadelphian Christians, uh, they, ha- they had it rough. They had it tough. First of all, there was a fault line that ran through Philadelphia. And the earthquakes would tremble and the city would shake and the walls would tumble and they were always rebuilding the city like a highway in West Michigan in summer. And it was in a volcanic region. They were always worried when the next eruption would happen. And for the Christians themselves, they were pressed by Roman power and pushed by Jewish persecution and oppression pushed into the shadows, pushed into silence. Their hearts were heavy. Their concerns were real. Their heads were down. And Jesus says, look, Jesus pleads, look, I've set before you a door standing open that no one will shut. Go through the door, Jesus means. Enter the alternative reality of what's really going on. Revelation 3, 8, there's an open door, gives way eventually to Revelation 4 that starts like this. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. The alternative reality promises, though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The alternative reality invites us into a full, whole, real life that God has always intended for you, accomplished through his son Jesus Christ and sends the spirit to stir in you now. Look, Jesus says, look, Jesus pleads. I've set before you an open door, an alternative reality of what's really real, what's actually going on here and now. Look, see it, catch a glimpse, go through the door. I was in a conversation recently with a young man, I guess 30 years old, had been in a really hard relationship for a really long time. It was not a healthy relationship, manipulative and coercive and controlling. But you know how it is when you're in a long relationship. It's hard to get out of the, the inertia to stay is thick and the f- concerns about an unknown future are scary, so you end up just staying stuck. He said to me, I would have told you I was a Christian, but there was no evidence in my life. Well, some things happened. I'm not exactly sure what. He mustered the courage. He broke off the relationship. And now he says, God awakened my heart to Jesus. In other words, look. Jesus says, look, Jesus pleads. I've set before you an open door. There's an alternative reality. Uh, This past week, I was teaching high school students preaching. That is an interesting exercise. 35 high school students from all over the country converged, mostly West Michigan, converged on Hope College for a conference called Awakenings, trying to equip young men and women for worship leadership in the church, vocal leadership, uh, musical leadership, and even preaching. Of the 35, seven students were interested in preaching. I was stunned. And five of the seven were women. I was overwhelmed. Uh, Here's a picture of my crew. On the second day, we found ourselves working through John's gospel, chapter 20, the resurrection story in John's gospel, and the students noticed the boys, Peter and John, ran away from the tomb. 
while the girls, Mary Magdalene, stayed at the tomb and became the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ and then went and announced to the disciples that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And I made the offhanded comment, a woman was the first preacher of the resurrection. And one girl, still masked, put her hand on her chest and looked at me like, is that, could that be true? And I said, yeah, and not only is it true, but she was a demon-possessed prostitute and two of the other girls put their hands on their cheeks, amazed and astonished that this could be. Jesus says, look, Jesus pleads, look, there's a door standing open that no one can shut, an alternative reality. You are not what people say about you. You are not what the cultural scripts tried to tell about you. There's an alternative reality available to you. Look, Jesus says, will you see it? It's a double door. On one level, an invitation into this alternative reality. And at the same time, this alternative reality, this full, whole, beautiful life, a truer true, a more beautiful beauty, a better way life for the world. That's always been true of God's heart. Even covenanting with Abram, I will bless you to bless others. That's always been the way. John's gospel, for God so loved the world. The full, whole, animated, beautiful life meant for you is not meant to be hoarded by you, but offered from you to others. That's the way of the gospel. This is just me. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to buy into this. It's just kind of my gut feeling. I think we're standing in an absolutely stunning moment of opportunity for Christian witness in the world in our communities. While others talk about the death of organized religion, the secularization of American culture, I'm just not buying it. I, I think this is one massive wake-up call from the Spirit of God into our lives, and I think you're waking up, waking up into this full, whole, animated life as good for the world. Let's stop playing by the banal, boring, predictable scripts of the world and actually get on with the centrality of the gospel in our lives for the world. Let's do that. Philadelphia was a missionary strategic city, not intended for the gospel, but rather for Roman expansion and Greek enculturation. And the Christian church there found themselves in this missionary significant moment to spread the good news of the gospel to the whole world. I like the way Eugene Peterson uh, puts it in the book titled Hallelujah Banquet. The Christian does not find himself or herself after being accepted by God in a comfortable luxury hotel smoking big cigars and reading the newspapers. He or she is a missile, a person destined to be sent through the open door into the society of the world to share the meaning of love and grace. Let's do that. Let's be that, to share with society the meaning of love and grace. Look, Jesus says, look, Jesus pleads, I've set before you a door standing open that no one will shut. That's the door, now the claim, the claim I want you to embrace, the claim, you ready for this? I'm going to shock the world right now, right here, it's Father's Day. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves loves you. If I say it enough times, maybe you'll begin to receive it. Jesus loves you. If you grew up around the church, you probably have heard that. You probably even believe that, but maybe you haven't embraced that. Jesus loves you. Whatever else you say about you, whatever else you think about you, 
Whatever other stories you've narrated about you or others have suggested are true of you. How about this? Try this on for size. Jesus loves you. The Philadelphian church, uh, for whatever reason, was, was small, maybe small in number, maybe small in influence. Jesus says of them, this is the end of verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9, I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. You have but little power, and they will learn that I have loved you. I have loved you. The way to power is not strength. The way to power is love. I have loved you. And when you're centered around your belovedness, think of the things you can do when you're centered in your belovedness. You can run, and you can go, and you can risk, and you can fail because you're loved. You have but little power, and they will learn that I have loved you. Not they will learn that you are right. Not that they will learn that you are better. Not that you, they will learn that you are somehow, they will learn that I have loved you. I don't know if it's because I'm a reformed church kid, and maybe you know what I'm talking about. We're just kind of used to thinking of ourselves as bad. I mean, we're the people who've coined the phrase total depravity, which doesn't mean what you think it means. We think it means I am totally bad, and it's just not the case. Yes, sin nature, sin action, sin systems, I get it. It's all true. We've got to deal with it. But the Bible doesn't begin there. The Bible begins with good, 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 and God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. What if we centered ourselves in that reality and went off into the world to offer love and joy and peace and goodness and all of it because you're loved. You are beloved of God. Try that on for size. I like the way uh, Henry Nouwen puts it in the book Life of the Beloved. Aren't you like me? hoping that some person, thing, or event will come along to give you that final feeling of inner well-being you desire? Don't you often hope, may this book, idea, course, trip, job, country, or relationship fulfill my deepest desire? But as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you'll go on running helter-skelter, always anxious and restless, always lustful and angry, never fully satisfied. You know that this compulsiveness that keeps us going and busy but at the same time makes you wonder whether we're getting anywhere in the long run. This is the way to spiritual exhaustion and burnout. This is the way to spiritual death. Well, you and I don't have to kill ourselves. We are beloved. We are intimately loved long before our parents, teachers, spouses, children, and friends loved or wounded us. That's the truth of our lives. That's the truth I want to claim for you. I want you to claim for yourself. That's the truth spoken by the voice that says, You are my beloved. You have but little power, and they will learn that I have loved you. I think the Heidelberg Catechism probably says it the best. What is your only comfort in life and in death that I'm not my own, but belong, body and soul, and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? You are beloved. They will learn that I have loved you. We're so often playing the power games. 
the power games that have existed since time immemorial. Cain kills Abel because Abel offered, one-upped his gift offering. Power games. Babel gets torn down because they thought they could build their way to heaven. Power games. Joseph gets thrown in the pit because their dad, by his brothers because their dad loved him and he got the better robe. Power games. So we gossip about our coworker who gets the promotion. Power games. So we, we retaliate in whatever way we do when someone says something about us, power games. So we brag about the accomplishment in hopes that it'll somehow entice you into just thinking just how valuable I am, that I belong, power games. We objectify people by categorizing them according to their opinion or their agenda, which allows us then to just tear them down, power games. And Jesus just isn't playing the games. Jesus isn't interested in the games. Jesus loves. He loves us so much. He entered into what we are to make us like he is. They will learn that I have loved you. Aren't you just tired of running around, as Nouwen puts it, helter-skelter, trying to climb the ladder only to realize there's so much higher to climb and you're never going to get there. What if, what, if, what if you centered your life around belovedness? What if you embraced belovedness? Yeah, you have but little power and they will learn that I have loved you. Think of the things you could do, the places you could go, the things you could say, the adventures you could have, the risks you could take, the failures you can fail. You are beloved. So Dave and Diana came here four years ago looking for a people to walk from diagnosis into whatever it would be for however long it would take. I want us to be that people. Uh, Dave's super smart. He's a straight shooter, a realist. Uh, keeps me from floating off into naive optimism. We've been taking these walks. Um, I cherish those walks. We would take them for the last several years, almost every Monday at four, I knew they were going to stop. Uh, I just didn't want them to stop, but they, they've stopped. So this past Monday, I made my way over to their home. It was 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Diana met me at the door. She pointed me into the living room where Dave was sitting on the couch. Uh, and we had another delightful conversation. He's really generous to me. He gives me all kinds of clothes. He, he, he taught at Holland High, and he did like the scoreboard for the soccer team and the basketball team, so he gives me all of the Holland High athletic clothes. Uh, he got up at one point in our conversation and grabbed three more. At one point, I asked him, how are you? Not in like the how do you feel right now way, but like, what's it like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? One of the things I love about Dave, it can be, you know, it's hard to talk about death and dying. You never know really what to say and how to say it. Maybe we shouldn't say it. How, how is the weather anyway? But not with Dave. Dave. Dave just made space to talk about death and dying. And he, he said the doctors have said a couple months, maybe less. And then here, here's how he answered my how are you question. He said, I'm just so grateful. He, he kept saying, I, 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 gratitude, I need a thesaurus to find a better word. I'm just so grateful. Doctors say, a couple months, 
maybe less. Dave says, I'm grateful. I know that you have but little power. And they will learn that I have loved you. That's the claim. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.